This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. Coming up, an uh, interview with uh, Philip Grant, who is a graduate student in anthropology here at UC Irvine, and he's written a letter to the chancellor here at UC Irvine about um, maybe about whether there or not, why, why there is no vigil for the Iraqis who are killed. Uh, so uh, in reaction to the Virginia Tech uh, uh, slayings, is there a limit to our sympathy uh, or we only uh, feel empathy for victims of uh, violence if they are Americans? And are we all Americans? So coming up, we're going to be talking with Philip Grant. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, in the station is uh, Philip, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, this, uh, your letter to um, Chancellor Michael Grant, uh, Michael, <laughs> Michael, Michael Grant, Drake, Michael Drake <laughs> make you a Chancellor, uh, is actually in uh, this week's uh, New University. Uh, opinion section. Um, why did you write that letter? Well, actually, um, at first, uh, I became very angry because of the way uh, in which I was being invited to mourn the victims of the Virginia Tech massacre. I mean, let me make clear from the start that I, I agree that the victims of the Virginia Tech massacre deserve our sympathy, and it's right that we should mourn them. Uh, what I object to is is the idea that the people in power here, the authorities, from everyone from the Chancellor down, uh, that it's their job to tell us who to mourn and when and how. And I think in any act of mourning, there's always an act of uh, forgetting involved. And what happened uh, here is that we mourn the 36 people uh, who died at Virginia Tech, but we forget that there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who've died in Iraq who... Uh, for whom we don't shed a single tear, for whom there is no commemoration ceremony, even though we, we are, you know, it is our tax money that funded the invasion, that funds the continuing occupation. And, and actually there are, there are two things about the, uh, the morning, the, the candlelight vigil at UCI that made me angry. The first was um, what I've just said, that uh, by mourning these people who died at Virginia Tech, we are we are forgetting to mourn all the other people who die violent deaths in the world every day and, are, and on a far greater scale than at Virginia Tech. The second thing was the, the way in which the Chancellor's email to the entire university was phrased, and it was very much, our nation um, is in mourning, our nation must have sympathy with the people who died at Virginia Tech, even though they're, they're on the other side of the country, we must remember that they are part of our nation, we're part of this nation, and that is why we should mourn. And I, I was really shocked by this because... From the time I've been at UCI, it's been impressed upon me how diverse this campus is. Of course, uh, you have people from all different uh, strata of American society, from diff different ethnic origins, and you also have quite a large student and faculty population and staff population that comes from overseas. And so I felt that I, as a, as a British person, was being excluded from this. Uh, and I didn't see why I should have to mourn the people at Virginia Tech because they were part of our nation when I wasn't part of this nation. And this is why I find, I find it very strange that the authorities at UCI who are supposed to represent 
everyone at UCI, uh, foreigners and Americans alike, had restricted this morning to Americans and yet felt the need to inform or to rather to summon everyone to mourn, even, even those of us who were not Americans. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at the video you mentioned uh, that the Chancellor invited people to attend, he wasn't actually around, but he, um, he was in D.C., I think. But um, there was a speaker from the Orange County Human Relations Commission who's the chair of it, uh, Ken Inoue. And, you know, he, he's a longtime activist, and I know him. And yet uh, he said at the rally, at the vigil, that we are all Americans. And that's also quoted in uh, the report in the New You about that vigil. And so, but yet people, of course, sitting there were not all Americans. And the victims of Virginia Tech were not, of course, all Americans. Why is there a need to bring this kind of nationalistic rhetoric into these vigils? I think that's a fascinating question, and I think it would help us in answering it to go back to where did this phrase, we are all Americans, come from? Uh, people have short memories, but some of your listeners, I'm sure, will be aware that this was actually the headline on a major French newspaper on September the 12th, 2001. Uh, the French newspaper Le Monde, which is a sort of center-left newspaper, although connected to the establishment in France, had a headline saying, Nous sommes tous Américains. We are all Americans. Um, and the fact that you know, at this at this point was an expression of solidarity, saying, we, although we are French, although we might not agree with your foreign policy or with your government or with President Bush, um, we are with you today, and this attack is an attack on us all. And that, that was a tremendous moment of solidarity and really replicated across the world. Um, if, we've, if we fast forward to 2007 and we find someone saying we are all Americans in the context of this massacre, we find that the phrase we are all Americans has taken on a very different meaning. For, from being an expression of solidarity across ethnic and national boundaries, it's become an expression of a very narrow nationalism. And it's really emblematic of how uh, the American government has squandered all the goodwill which existed towards America in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's useful here to remember that solidarity, although it's a very positive word, it has a lot of associations we, we like to encourage, we think is a good thing, can also be a bad thing because solidarity is often predicated on exclusion. That you can only have solidarity of one group by excluding another. And American nationalism in this case is, is a great case in point. Uh, there's a feeling of tremendous solidarity generated. It's... Uh, a, a common feeling, a, a moral community, if you like, uh, which the, the Chancellor and others are, tr are trying to make us be part of, uh, are using the Virginia Tech massacre as, as, a, as a starting point. But only that feeling of solidarity, of moral community, can only be achieved by excluding others, in this case, anyone who is not American. There is a, you know, on campus, the Chancellor and other people do reiterate often that there are UCI principles of diversity as kind of inclusive and not exclusive. And yet, uh, in, her, in his email and also in the speeches that were given at this vigil, it seemed there was uh, kind of ignorance of those principles. That's correct, and that, that's what made me so angry in the first place. Um, that's really the, the, the main reason why I wrote the letter. Um, I mean, sadly, it's almost a commonplace that uh, people die violently all, all over the world but only the ones in America are, are mourned here. Uh, but I, I totally agree. It's, it's what really made me angry was the gap between the official rhetoric, the official ideology, and the actual practice. 
You know, uh, I was in London actually during in nineteen uh, uh, I think, or sixty-nine or seventy. I forget now. During the Kent State killings, and I was actually in a Chinese restaurant in London, and <laughs> and the waiters were saying, "Finally, now America knows what it means uh, to have your youth killed," and so they thought that that way that brought the war home, and so that uh, in the sense that Americans are kind of don't really seem uh, seem oblivious maybe they seem oblivious they do seem oblivious to deaths abroad unless it happens to americans yeah i, I think that's a that's a very good point i mean, i have to say in defense of americans firstly that not all americans think that way and secondly that you can find plenty of people in my own country or elsewhere that are equally um perturbed by deaths in their own country or say when a british soldier dies but don't care too much if an iraqi dies or a chinese person Having said that, I, I think you, you're onto something there, that there's something striking about American nationalism in the current moment and really striking about the U.S. as a whole is that really Americans, a lot, a lot of Americans aren't too interested in the outside world and have the impression that America is, is world enough for them. And really there's, there's a kind of fundamental disconnect between the reality of America, what makes sense to, to the average American, and the reality of the outside world, what makes sense to to people in Iraq or France or China or South Africa. Uh, we're in the middle of a pledge drive actually here uh, for donations to the station to help keep it running. You can call 824-KUCI, 824-KUCI, if you want to support uh, issues and uh, discussions like this on this station, uh, on this radio show, uh, call 824-5824, 824-KUCI. Uh, Thank you very much. And there's also pledges. Uh, there's also, uh, what do you call that, premiums that you can get. And when you call, uh, our staff who's uh, in the station can help you uh, through the number, numerous pledges, uh, numerous uh, premiums that are available. Uh, we're talking with Philip Grant, who's a graduate student uh, focusing on uh, Iran, uh, doing his research on Iran. And he has written an open letter now uh, to the chancellor, talking about the emphasis uh, on the nation in the Chancellor's appeal to uh, a vigil over uh, the Virginia Tech uh, massacres. Uh, you know, if what you say is true, that there's this nationalistic kind of tendency, wouldn't there be more vigils for the American soldiers who were killed in Iraq? That's a very interesting question. I'm not sure if I can really give an answer. What I can say is that I think there is a very interesting politics of mourning arising. Now, um, my research uh, is mainly on Iran, and Iran is a country I've, I've been to a couple of times. I've spent a few months there. And one very striking thing about Iran uh, is, is the cult, if you like, of martyrdom, uh, specifically the, the martyrdom of the soldiers who died uh, fighting against Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. And everywhere you go, there are streets named after... Uh, soldiers who died in this war. There are pictures. Uh, if you go to the big cemeteries, there are. It, it's quite a sight. It's very impressive. There are thousands and thousands of graves, each with a picture and maybe some personal effects. There are museums to commemorate them. There are you know, school children are con constantly enjoined to uh, remember the martyrs. The, the martyr is held up as an ideal for, for Iranian youth. And I, I've never been anywhere in the world... Um, anything remotely like this until the other day I was driving um, along the PCH uh, just south of here coming back from San Juan Capistrano and I went through a small town I'm not sure 
which one it was, and on each lamppost on the PCH there was affixed a large photograph of a soldier who di- an American soldier who died in Iraq uh, with his name and the inscription something like American War Hero. And it struck me that we're seeing the beginnings of a, of a similar kind of cult of martyrdom, uh, maybe not called martyrdom, but sim- similar cult of mourning that in a way our public space is going to be invaded uh, by these kind of images and that the sort of official discourse won't permit anyone to to question the the motives or the justness of the war because it will all be subsumed under this this motif of patriotism and nationalism and heroism I, the equation will be made that if you question the war you question the continuing american presence in iraq then you are questioning the heroism the the bravery of of these soldiers who died and who are being commemorated but you know it could be that um even these kind of memorials, if they don't glorify the battle, um, could be uh, done by the left in a way, in the sense that if you go to Santa Monica Beach, there's thousands of hundreds of crosses of everybody who's been killed there from on the American side. And uh, there is uh, some uh, activist groups have been putting those up as a reminder of the deaths. And so it's an anti-war statement rather than a glorification of... Uh, or more, uh, or uh, kind of, uh, you know, glorification of the battle of, of the military. So, I mean, I think there's mm-hmm. two ways to look at some of this. I know that what you were describing on PCH probably was uh, a kind of a patriotic thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, of course, I'm not saying that we should just abandon uh, mourning to, to the right. I'm, I'm in favor of mourning, and I do believe in solidarity, and I do believe in a, generating a sense of moral community, and I, I very much believe that I haven't been to Santa Monica and seen what you what you are describing but i believe things like that are important both to say but both so that the left or any progressive person doesn't abandon uh this field to to the right to the to the nationalists and the patriots and and the warmongers and also because i i believe it is right that we mourn people who die in war i believe that this is a way of reminding people of, of trying to change people's minds of trying to make them realize that this kind of conflict is, has an, an unfathomable, unfathomable cost in terms of human life and, and suffering. And I suppose what I'd like to see is, is some sort of recognition of the far greater numbers of Iraqis who died. I mean, earlier I mentioned the, the French uh, solidarity with um, America on the aftermath of 9-11. But I was also very struck when I was in France hearing an Algerian novelist say, well, at a conference... It's all very well. You talk about terrorism and the fear of terrorism now. You know, 150,000 people died in Algeria in the 90s because of terrorism, and none of you people said anything. And I, th- I think it is very important for the left as well to realize that it's not just Americans who die. Of course, the left should care very much about Americans who die, but they should also care about the and the two, three, four hundred thousand Iraqis who, who have died in this conflict. I'm glad you brought up the Algerians' uh, civil war uh, because the... Um or the French involvement in that, because uh, there's a new book that a uh, book that's been reissued by University of Nebraska Press by a soldier who actually observed a lot of torture and uh, kind of uh, atrocities in in the in that war. Uh, as a reminder, it's been reissued as a reminder to what the U.S. has been doing in Abu Ghraib and in Iraq. And so th- these things uh, continue. And uh, April 30th uh, today is a uh, is the date of the liberation of Saigon, or as they call it here in Little Saigon, Black April. And uh, that was also a war where uh, many of the techniques of 
uh, counterinsurgency were uh, used in Vietnam, uh, torture and uh, U.S. Uh, atrocities that were uh, practiced and the lessons of Vietnam seems not to have been learned in the current conflict. I mean, that's correct. I'm, I'm no specialist on counterinsurgency, but you're absolutely right. I think maybe we are, we're confusing two Algerian wars here. I, I was talking about the one in the 90s, the, the Civil War, and maybe this book is about the 50. war of... Yeah, no, the six, War of Independence, yeah, the sorry, War of I'm, Liberation. I'm sorry. Right? Yeah, I'm, but I got in, confused. Yeah. In, which, in which, I mean, quite rightly, you said that uh, uh, you know, the, the French used a lot of torture, a lot of very dubious military techniques. Um, I certainly know that, that when the, the Pentagon was drawing up its war plans for Iraq, they, they took note of the French experience. Uh, I'm sure many people have seen the film... Uh, Battle of Algiers by um, Ponte Corvo, who died last year. And this was a required viewing for, for top brass in the Pentagon on the, uh, at the time of the Iraq invasion. And yet, as, and then of course, there's the Vietnam experience, which I suppose we all thought rather fondly meant that America would never get involved in any, in any um, major foreign military adventures ever again. But sadly, with, within, you know, within a generation, this, we were proved wrong. But... Um, you're absolutely right. The, we simply haven't learned the lessons of of these wars, and oh, we've learned the wrong lessons, I mm. guess. And um, last night there was uh, on uh, t on cable TV, uh, uh, Discovery Channel, um, one of the former ABC uh, newscasters now runs this program on Discovery, and he did a special on Iran. And actually, he actually talked to a lot of people that uh, had ch uh, children who were martyred in the earlier war with Iraq. And um, so that, that's true that everywhere you go, there's you know, plaques and other signs of uh, showing martyrdom. And, um, and yet even that program, which is supposed to be showing the reality of Iran, uh, ended with, uh, with, a, um, with the interview of Ted Koppel on a battleship, a U.S. battleship, basically saying that if diplomacy doesn't work, then we can, you know, use these striker missiles <laughs> that they were, you know, hidden on mm -hmm. this on this deck here. Uh, and that might be the, you know, last resort. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that's a, that's a fascinating image. And it, I, mean, I think you're quite right that we learned the wrong lessons from Algeria and from Vietnam. And I think we're learning the wrong lessons from Iraq as well, because one thing that Iraq showed us was that, fine, the technology the U.S. Army has is overwhelmingly successful when used against a conventional army in Iraq, but it, it's next to useless uh, if you're fighting a, a sort of insurgency, a, a guerrilla war like, like uh, America's fighting now. And for that matter, the experience of Israel and Lebanon last summer also showed that you can be much better equipped, have a, a, you know, far superior technology, but this doesn't mean you can win a war against a, a determined uh, guerrilla force. And so... Ted Carpo was standing on a battleship saying, we've got these wonderful striker missiles just in case. Well, that says to me that the Pentagon just hasn't learned, or maybe the American public at large just hasn't learned the lesson that having the best military technology in the world is not going to win you uh, a war against people who are really fighting for their life and their dignity and determined to defend their homeland in, in, the, in the case of Iran. Although on radio this morning on NPR, this, I heard the... Uh uh, a, a program talking about counterinsurgency academy in uh, Iraq, and there was a U.S. program that uh, makes uh, commanders and officers. U.S. about six thousand have gone through this uh, school, 
uh, to teach them a five-day program teaching them about counterinsurgency. Uh, one example given by this guy, uh, this soldier was, uh, or this commander there, was that uh, if you find a bomb, you don't just uh, uh, get rid of it or, or make it not work. You find out where they're going to detonate it and then you know, arrest the people, question them, find out. So instead of just demobilizing the bomb, you, you do something else because this is a guerrilla war, basically, they were saying. And so 6,000 American uh, officers, I suppose, have gone through this, and now they're trying to uh, teach that here in the U.S. Uh, stateside before they get sent to Iraq. So uh, I think there is slow recognition, of course, that uh, <laughs> there is a guerrilla war. There's their political motives for fighting the U.S. And, of course, uh, you know, the, of course, the answer, of course, is to change U.S. policy. But of course, U.S. Mm. policy doesn't, you know, the soldiers aren't going to say that. Of course not. And, I, and I'm sure the soldiers, there are certain rules that they have to follow. They can't go around um, <clears throat> saying what they think American foreign policy should be, that that's not their job. But I think the, even with the best will in the world, even with all the counterinsurgency academies and 6,000 or 60,000 soldiers trained, that there's there are limits to this kind of approach. Because like you say, it's all about politics and the fact is that the insurgents themselves are always learning. They didn't just sit there waiting for the Americans to outsmart them. They're, you know, they're resourceful, clever people themselves, many of them, and you know, they're constantly tr trying to uh, come up with new tactics. And that's, that's you know, one of the many disastrous aspects of the war in Iraq is that it gave a lot of very unsavory people, as well as um, just Iraqis defending themselves, a, a chance to test out new tactics, to try out new tactics. It, it, it's a just as Afghanistan was in the 80s, Iraq uh, now is a fantastic training ground for a lot of people who really do wish America harm and uh, a, a, a chance to flex their muscles, a chance to work out um, what are the best techniques for you know, attacking America, for taking on American troops. And and as long and of course Iraq itself. The invasion of Iraq and, and the ongoing conflict has been a tremendous recruiting symbol for a, a large you know, a panoply of groups in, in the Arab and wider Islamic world who, are, who wish America a lot of ill. And it's all very well. You can train soldiers in counterinsurgency, but if you can't stem the flow of recruits to the insurgents' cause, you're always going to be you know, playing catch-up. Right, playing catch-up or struggling to push back the tide or whatever the metaphor is. Actually, on that show, it was interesting. Uh, they did show a clip of Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein, and uh, uh, Ted Koppel did say that the U.S. supplied the chemical weapons that were used uh, in the earlier war. And so there was a kind of um, attribution to the U mm -hmm. to U.S. for some of the earlier kind of atrocities. Right, and, and I think that's, although it's, it's good to see um, that that is, is being aired in the public sphere, there's also something which generally in, in the U.S., but in, in the Western world as a whole, we, we tend to forget. And you know, I said I've, I've been to Iran. My research is about Iran. That is something Iranians certainly haven't forgotten. Uh, and I don't mean that in, in a negative way. That I'm not saying there's lots of resentment or anger against the United States. You know, Iranians that I know tend to be very open-minded and generous and very interested in the outside world and want to learn from it and really wish for better relations with the U.S. But they certainly haven't forgotten that... Uh, pretty much everyone was on Iraq's side during this war. I mean, obviously the U.S., but also um, the U.S.'s allies in the Arab world, including Kuwait, including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. They were financing Iraq. They were you know, the Europeans, the French, the British, the Germans as well. 
they were financing Iraq, they were selling Iraq weapons. I mean, even the Soviet Union was helping uh, Iraq. Every, everyone was against Iran because everyone was so terrified. Here was a new Islamic revolutionary threat, and they thought that if they didn't help Iraq, this would you know, sweep through the Middle East uh, almost overnight. And, and the, the Iranians certainly haven't forgotten that, that they were fighting against an Iraqi army, which was already much better equipped, and then had all this financial and military help from, from all the great powers of the world at the time. Yeah, the one thing that struck me in the, that uh, discovery show that Ted Koppel narrated uh, was that uh, it showed that the blockade against I- Iran was totally ineffective, the 20-some-year blockade. And there was all this Western um, merchandise, Sony, uh, Playstations, whatever, <laughs> in, in Iran. Did you find that to be the case when you were there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the case. And also the Iranians are, are pretty mean counterfeiters themselves. There, there's a lot of... <laughs> fake western or, or fake oh, know, east asian goods as well so I, I can tell you whether it's all real or not but absolutely i mean it's oh. very established smuggling channels really i mean from dubai especially it's, it's it's big business and people know about it and i don't think i think in the way that i'm just speculating here but the iranian authorities turn a blind eye to it because it satisfies some sort of demand for these things which which the government can't satisfy um it makes a lot of people in iran and in in dubai fairly wealthy as well. So it's in a lot of people's interests. And I agree that the blockade, I mean, where, where the blockade really does hurt is, in, is for a bigger ticket sort of items, things which you can't really smuggle across the Persian Gulf on a little boat. For instance, I mean, spare parts for aeroplanes. And this is why a lot of um, Iranian, both civil and military aeroplanes are, are very unreliable. They tend to fall out of the sky rather more often than they do because, because of sanctions, because of the blockade. And one thing the Iranians have frequently said is, you know, what have you got against us? You know, do you really want our planes to be crashing and people to be dying all the time? You know, wh- yeah. Why can't you sell us aircraft parts? They actually showed the a U.S. carrier uh, shooting down an Iranian passenger plane. Uh, there was a cockpit, uh, or I mean, in not cockpit, but uh, boat pit or whatever they call it, or whatever, mm-hmm. in, on the U.S. carrier. Uh, they showed people saying they got this target, and it was an Iranian uh, passenger plane. Uh, that uh, U.S. actually deliberately shot down. That's right. I, I think in in their defense, they didn't think it was a passenger plane, but but you could <laughs> all the same. But they quoted somebody who was head of the Hezbollah in that area, and he, uh, I think he was Hezbollah, but uh, or, or whatever, and he was saying that he could see the plane. He actually mm-hmm. saw the plane, and you could see that it was a passenger plane. It was flying so low that people could actually recognize it. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, that was in 1987, I think. But I mean, even if we do accept that the U.S. Navy made a mistake, we still have to ask the question, why on earth were they shooting down any sort of Iranian plane? Because officially the war was between Iraq and Iran, and the U.S. military had no business being involved. So, so why, why was the U.S. Navy there? Why was it firing at Iranian planes in the first place? And then, the, then there's the question you raised, you know, did they know it was a passenger plane all along? Well, when were you, uh, when were you last there? I was last there in uh, winter of last year, so winter 2006. Did you find people expecting the U.S. to invade or drop bombs? I think at that time the, the nuclear issue was first really becoming um, sensitive. Uh, the negotiations were failing and, and the you know, kind of rhetoric was being stepped up on both sides. So that there, there was a beginning of a feeling of unease. I didn't, I didn't think it was something which was topmost on people's minds. Uh, but occasionally people did say to me, do you think America will invade? Um, and clear, it wasn't a prospect they were welcoming particularly. Was it uh, easy? Was it the fact that you're British? 
it was that easier for you to get around than if you were you think if you were American? Well, it's certainly easier for me to get a visa. I mean, once you're in Iran, I think it's fairly easy to get around. I mean, knowing the language, of course, helps. Of course, the British themselves haven't got the best of reputations in Iran. <laughs> uh, long, long before the Americans really right. got interested in Iran, the British were, along with the Russians, were one of the two major colonial powers in the area. It, Iran was never officially colonized, but the British and the Russians sort of divided it up into spheres of influence and changed governments when, they, when it suited them. And, and generally, the British acquired a reputation of, of being very clever, cunning spies. Having said that, I've, I've never really encountered that from Iranians. I mean, I make jokes about it to Iranians and they <laughs> laugh and say, yes, of course, you're all spies. But generally, I've, I've found people to be extremely welcoming and were prepared to let the, let the past be the past, which I think was a very admirable attitude. Were you um, doing anthropological research or were you doing um, other research? What, what were you doing there? Well, when I was doing research, at the time I was doing my master's, and my master's was really in um, political sociology. Uh, this was a master's I did at, at the Institute of Political Studies, Institut d'Etudes Politiques in Paris. Uh, so I was, uh, when I was first there, the first time I went, I was in Tehran, and I was doing research on the post-revolutionary generation, so those born after 79, and their attitudes towards the current war in Iraq, um, which actually I called the fourth war in Iraq. Um, the reason being is that actually, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the f that we've forgotten all these conflicts. I mean, people tend to talk about, uh, well, for instance, the, the, the war in 91 to get um, the Iraqi forces out of Kuwait was labeled the Gulf War, despite the fact that only three years earlier, another war called, which had been called in English, the Gulf War had ended. And by 91, people had already forgotten about that. What people have long forgotten was that actually um, after the First World War of 1918 to some point in the early 20s, there was a massive revolt in Iraq um, against British uh, colonial government. And this is what I would call the first Iraq war because I think that we've got to the fourth now and all four of these wars have, have in common not only the, uh, the central role of Iraq in them but also the interference of outside powers uh, that is to say, colonial Western powers, and in the first place, Britain, and then later on, the United States. And I think you've got to remember that if you'd grown up in that region, if you were Iraqi or if you were Iranian, you'd be very aware of this history. And you'd have a much sort of bigger and longer context in, in, into which to place these wars. Last night's show also suggested that maybe in, eventually the two countries would merge. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I didn't know what their reasoning was for that. I, I think that's highly unlikely because... <laughs> Iranians are extremely nationalistic, and of course, they're, the roots of their nationalism are, are very deep. Uh, they have a certain kind of um, a disregard for for the Arabs and the Iraqis. They they believe that their own Iranian civilization, Persian-speaking civilization, yeah. is older and richer, and and so on. Of course, at the same time, there are lots of links across the border, and they go back a, a long, long time as well. I mean, for much of from the time of the Islamic con conquest until you know, for, for several centuries afterwards, uh, Iran was often ruled from Baghdad and the, the, the supposedly Arab bureaucracy of the, the caliphate in Baghdad was staffed by large numbers of, of Persian speakers and there's a tremendous interpenetration mm. of, of the two languages and cultures and they, they learnt a lot from each other. And, and you can't really, you know, Iran without uh, the Arabs would not be the Iran we know it. Um, having, and, and at the same time then, when Iran became Shiite, uh, because the major Shiite holy centers, Najaf and Karbala, in the south of what is now Iraq, there right. continue to be very important links because of that. And a lot of the 
leading clerical families on both sides of the borders uh, have, border have the same names. The, you know, these are the same families, and they've crossed the border many times in history. Having said that, I think that you know, the situation of Iraq and Iran has, has diverged a lot in recent years. You had the revolution in Iran, you had Ba'athism in, in Iraq, and then you had the various wars. It's, it's, they, the two countries have very distinct national identities, and I can't see how they could, they could ever merge together in, in, in the short term. I think they were suggesting that because the border is so porous that there's all this um, I- Iranian uh, uh, entrance mm-hmm. to the religious sites and also uh, selling goods and other stuff that it seems like there's more in common. Yeah, I, that's a very interesting point, and I would add to that actually up in the, in the north, uh, the Kurdish area of Iran and the Kurdish area of Iraq, uh, very mountainous borders, long been very porous, big smuggling route, um, again, family ties on both sides of the border. But I think it's very important to remember that this border is porous, that there's a lot of commerce and interchange ac- across it, but at the same time, I, I still think that by virtue of language, by virtue of a very different recent history. Iran and Iraq are still very separate places. And I don't think there's anyone in Iran who would want to merge with Iraq. I mean, Iraq is seen <laughs> as a, a sort of a very poor, benighted place, a lot of problems, you know, mostly not of their own making. And there's a lot of sympathy for Iraq is, is what I found. But really, <laughs> an idea that Iraq is very different and we're very glad that our problems aren't their problems because you know, we didn't know how to solve their problems. How about the role of the, Shah, the previous Shah is that uh, of Iran is that um, is he out of the picture totally that Shah family well that, that's interesting I, I think so certainly this is not something that I would go around <clears throat> excuse me uh, asking uh, Iranians in Iran you know it's, it's a bit of a taboo topic at the same time when I, I did speak to friends of mine and asked them for instance if, if they watched some of the uh, Iranian TV channels that come here uh, that are you know, based in Los Angeles, some of which are connected to the the Pahlavi family, the former royal right. family, <clears throat> and which agitate for a uh, Pahlavi restoration. And my friends just laughed and said, "These these TV channels are so poor, so out of touch with the realities of current day Iran." Sure, we may not like our government very much, and we want change, but these people are stuck in 1979, and they're still fighting old battles, and we have nothing to say to them or nothing to learn from them. So, so I think it would be very unlikely. Uh, I, I don't really see... I mean, there is Reza Pahlavi. He was the son of the last Shah. I think he lives in D.C. He's, he's about 40 years old now. He's, he's a successful businessman. He certainly has contacts in Washington. Um, but I think, no, absolutely not. There's, the, the Pahlavi dynasty is not regarded with any great affection in Iran. And you, You'll meet people occasionally who tell you things were better than the Shah's day, but they were, that's either young people who never experienced it and what they're really talking about is some measure of cultural freedom. They want to be able to go to a nightclub or a bar or something <laughs> like that or wear the clothes they want. Or, or it's an, an older person who's, who remembers you know, what prices were like before massive inflation of the 80s and 90s. And that, There's that kind of nostalgia, but that doesn't translate into any sort of affection for the royal family or any desire for a restoration of a monarchical regime is just uh, a sort of express a way of expressing one's discontent with the, the current order and and one's frustration and not knowing how to how to change it i think yeah because the sun has shown up in irvine doing his rounds i think especially at the center for study of democracy and because i remember seeing it his picture on one of their websites um when he this was probably 10 years ago five years ago mm-hmm. when he was uh doing his talking tour uh, lecture tour, um, so he did show up in Orange County. Um, do you, what what is it like uh, since you've been to Iran a few times recently? Um, 
what is are people uh, very politicized or do they or, I mean what's the normal day to day situation like I, I don't think people are very politicized um, in, in the sense that they're organized that they're actively and openly lobbying for serious political change I think that that would be very hard in Iran I mean, you can't really found your own political party you can't go around having demonstrations uh, when you feel like it and also um, right now in Iran there's a, there's a sort of sense of disillusionment because in, in, in the late 90s early the early years of this century there was a big movement for change there were these people called the reformists the Esloh Talabon who came to power in Iran under Khatami's presidency who said they were going to change things who uh, who did very basic things like smile and and yeah. also more, promise more serious change and and a lot of the young people a lot of women especially voted for them and said well this is you know things are going to get better around here and to some extent they did the, the trouble was that the, the way Iran's political structure is set up, that they didn't have the final say, the president and even the parliament, although they can make policy and they can change things, it's the, they were up against the power of the judiciary, the, the power of something called the Guardian's Council, and the power of the supreme leader of, of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khamenei. And, and, and in the end, they disappointed and they failed to meet people's expectations. And now people are saying, especially the young people, well, what's the point? You know, why should we worry? Why should we put our faith in politicians and these reformists? You know, in the end, they didn't do what they told us they would do. And I suppose people lost faith in the political process and, and in the ability of the political process to change things. Are you looking at the religious, how, how religion has changed there? Uh, yeah, I, I, the... Religion in Iran is fascinating. I mean, firstly, I think I, I think the Iranian Revolution has taught us all a very important lesson, is, and that was that religion is not some conservative force or something destined to die out with the advent of modern technology and and politics and mm. and uh, secularism. That actually can be a very powerful, radical, uh, revolutionary force for change. And then the history of the Islamic Republic since then has also taught us that religion doesn't provide us with any easy solutions. That politicizing uh, religion can be a very dangerous thing. And, and you know, just as with most of the revolutions in history, the initial moment, the initial coalition, the uh, initial impulse to change, the that moment of freedom quickly becomes uh, ossified, crystallized in, in, a, in a new authoritarian government. And so it's been very interesting to watch the evolution of religion in Iran since then. So... I think generally people in Iran are still uh, very religious, but they are so in a very different way than they were in, in 1978-79 when the revolution happened. Religion now is not really um, seen as identical with politics. Uh, people are very interested in secularism. They're very interested in uh, the Western experience of secularism. They're very interested in how Iran could be secular, how to reconcile uh, being good Muslims and yeah, without falling into the trap of believing that this means you must have a religious republic. And this, this is, again, something you can't really voice in Iran, but a lot of, hmm. uh, you know, people are discussing this. They're, they find ways of expressing their opinions. And, and, you know, some of these people are, a lot of the people who are arguing against the, the religious government in Iran are themselves very religious people. Some of them are even clerics, or some of them are consider themselves religious intellectuals. So I think religion is continuing to be very important. But what's now... And the key word is pluralism in a way it, it's we have to we can be religious but in a pluralist way and a lot of uh, major intellectuals in iran think that 
um, Islamic Republic is, is a disaster for Islam because the longer it goes on, the more the young people who've only known the Islamic Republic and only known this kind of Islam, that the more they will feel alienated from Islam and the, 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 mm. the kind of less their respect for it will be. Is there any opening uh, for civil society uh, like uh, NGOs and that kind of stuff? Yeah, once again, it, it's you've got to be very careful. I mean, actually, uh, maybe it would help if I uh, talked about my own experience of this. Uh, I taught English when I was there the last time, so winter 2005-06. Um, and one of my pupils was an extremely intelligent uh, 28-year-old who, who had founded a series of NG, what he called NGOs. Uh, he told me that his previous one had been an, uh, an association which had aimed to raise awareness of environmental issues in Iran. Iran, like uh, a lot of places in the world, is very polluted. Um, there's some serious problems with air pollution, uh, especially. And he, he and some friends of his had gone around the city of Esfahan in central Iran trying to raise people's consciousness of, of environmental damage, even by doing something as mundane as going around the streets and picking up trash. And then he, he for whatever reason, this uh, NGO had, had run its course. It, it was dissolved. And he set up another one, which was more of a discussion society. And twice a week, he'd rent some office space in downtown Esfahan. And he'd get together with some friends, um, and they'd invite a speaker, often they'd invite an academic. And they'd, they'd talk about what he called cultural and social issues. Uh, because politics is just too much of a hot potato to talk about. Having said that, of course, cultural and social issues are political, especially in somewhere like Iran, where the government has a very specific and narrow definition of what it considers to be true Iranian culture to be, which it, it tries to enforce in public space. And, and so um, he invited me to go and speak to them, and I went and spoke about the experience of multi multiculturalism in, in Britain. And we had a very interesting and lively discussion afterwards and a lot of these Iranians the, the young people especially they have a wonderful passion for knowledge and a great interest in knowledge from outside and a, a great familiarity with a lot of ideas which would be familiar to Americans or, or Europeans which in a way is, tr is truly humbling because it's certainly the case that we here in the US or in Europe don't have this kind of familiarity with what Iranian thinkers are saying even though they're saying some interesting things which could be relevant for us. Definitely. Uh, how is the internet? Is it uh, censored at all? Yeah, the internet is censored. I mean, I'm not an expert on, on these kind of things, but I'm told by people who know more about matters of IT security that Iran is one of the countries which has purchased some of the most powerful software in the world for, for monitoring and censoring internet sites. Um, Iranians generally are very IT literate. Uh, it's a very young population. Uh, you know, I think 70% uh, of the population is under 30, if I remember correctly. Uh, there are internet cafes everywhere. Um, there are a large, very large number of blogs. Um, these statistics have to be treated with caution, but I've read that uh, Persian is either the second or the fourth most um, common language for blogs, the, the first being English, hmm. of course. Uh, so, so certainly there's, there, there, there is a lot of this going on. This, this, the internet was a very important way for young Iranians to express their political views, to express their dissent, to, to, to get together, to form solidarity, uh, to, to campaign. The government is very much aware of this, and hence its investment in this very um, sophisticated software. And also occasionally there have been, some of the bloggers were arrested uh, a couple of years ago and their sites shut down. So, so it's certainly, it's, it's a very important forum for Iranians, but it's also one in which the government is trying its best to control. Yeah, it's, it sounds very similar to Vietnam, where 
I hung out a few uh, for some time and uh, also taught at the university there a little bit. And uh, the, at first they tried to do uh, regulation of uh, internet much more, and uh, and they do sentence people to years in prison for even posting U.S. embassy stuff mm-hmm. that's freely available on the web and cir- circling it. But uh, it seems like, uh, and at some point they tried to register everybody that used the internet, but there's like thousands of internet cafes and only the ones in near the u.s embassy or do they register in that same building but uh that's there's an extension to the embassy where some embassies are in that building and they do register people downstairs there's an internet cafe but nowhere else where i was in the last you know all the seven times i've or eight times i visited there have uh nowhere else was i asked to register so i think it's uh it's a losing thing i mean they they can't keep track and of course, they probably need, uh, if they're looking at uh, foreigners, if they're trying to track foreigners, then of course they need the people that know the languages that are being mm-hmm. uh, used in the chats. And so that's really a hard thing. Uh, so, But in terms of the youth population, uh, same thing, uh, over half the population are, are under 30. And so they have no memory of the Vietnam War, what they call the American War. And so it's a totally different kind of viewpoint from the people over here in Little Saigon, for instance. Mm-hmm. So there's a generational shift. Yeah, that, that definitely sounds, it would be very interesting. I don't know much about Vietnam, but to do some sort of comparison, because clearly the you know, the events, the Iranian revolution in one case, the the American or Vietnam war in the, in the other case, very much happened at, at a similar kind of time. And you have this post-war or post-revolutionary generation, which knows nothing of it. And at the same time, you have a very large diaspora population, you know, in both cases, in, in very well represented in Southern California, which has a very different version of events and a, and a different memory. And here we are again, we come back to this politics of memory and, and how memory can be used and abused. Uh, and also I think it's interesting, yeah. just going back to um, what we were saying earlier about availability of Western or you know, East Asian, Chinese, Japanese goods in, in Iran is that actually the software that um, the Iranian government uses to monitor the internet comes from an American company, although apparently they got they got hold of it illegally <laughs> because you know, no American business is allowed to transact directly with Iran, but somehow they got hold of this software and, and that's what they're using. How about the films uh, that are available here? Are there films from uh, Iran that are available here and are they bootlegged, it, bootlegged here or are they, uh, are they authentic uh, from Iran? Um, certainly there are lots of films available here, I mean, especially because of the uh, large Iranian population here. Um, I'm not quite sure where they're made. My impression is that they they are made in Iran, and certainly if you look at the, the subtitling, the English can often be quite dubious, so I think they're probably produced in Iran. I should also think that Dubai is a major center for no. this kind of stuff. There's a large Iranian population in Dubai. Uh, a lot of them go there, they do business there, feel a little bit wealthier not wealthy enough maybe to come to the west then that that's somewhere you go if you want a bit of cultural freedom although obviously not political freedom um and and there's a bit like i said earlier it's a big center for smuggling uh, to all sorts of places but especially iran so i i would imagine that a lot of it comes from dubai Uh, especially in hanoi there was a lot of uh, bootleg uh, dvds from china so almost every Western movie you can get on the street a few days later after it's <laughs> made, right. uh, after it's shown in the West. And so uh, is there similar kind of bootlegging of uh, of Western movies in I- Iran when you were there? Did you see? Yes, there there is absolutely. I mean, you can get most things uh, there. All the, the authorities try to clamp down now and then. But, but this has been, even going back before uh, DVDs, um, 
before satellite TV, one of the main ways in which Iranians uh, got access to the outside world was by was through bootleg videos. And so in the 80s, more and more people, more and more households had video players, and there was a big uh, trade in bootleg videos, not only Western movies but also Indian movies. And you know, they've never really looked back. I think clearly this is something for which there are no reliable statistics, but it was seen that the, the trade has increased. And yeah, absolutely, these Western movies are very much available in Iran. It's it's a way in which Iranians, uh, you know, get an impression of the West. Uh, why did you come? Uh, getting back to your academic uh, situation, why did you come? Why did you pick Irvine after having such an illustrious career uh, in academia? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. Actually, um, I think Irvine is a terrific university. Uh, um, the reason I came here was was that actually um, this is as of firstly the anthropology department is a, is one of the best in the country here, and it's it's. It's quite a young department. It's very dynamic. There are lots of new ideas. It's one of the more radical uh, departments in the country. Uh, it really feels like somewhere which is going places, which in the next few years can only continue to grow in terms of reputation and, and achievement. Um, and then, because um, I, I work on Iran, there, there are very few anthropologists who work on Iran precisely because uh, U.S.-Iranian relations are so bad and it's been very hard for anyone to go and do research there since the revolution. And so uh, Roxanne Varazi, who is in the department here, uh, who published a book last year about the post-revolutionary generation called Warring Souls, uh, she's, she's one of the few people um, anywhere who works on anthropology and Iran, and so I wanted to come and work with her. And plus they were setting up the Center for Persian Studies. There's a lot of Iran-related stuff going on in both at UCI and in Orange County in Southern California that's, that's very exciting for someone coming from Europe. Wholesome foods. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, there's nothing like that. And, and you know, there are Iranians who live in Paris and London, where I live. But you know, the supermarket is—it's kind of not much bigger than the studio where we're recording uh, this show. And you get a wholesome choice, and it's—I it's, have never seen anything like it. Right, and they even carry Chinese newspapers. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's very diverse, actually, not just Persian food uh, or music or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so do do you find that? Um, do you find back on the news coverage of this uh, video, it seems to me that they ignored the fact that um, uh, all the killings in Virginia Tech. Uh, in, Ira- in Iraq, actually, there was uh, more, more students killed at universities there uh, in the past few months. And yet there was no video, uh, of course, uh, here about those students. Right. So that again raises the issue of... of why is it we're expressing solidarity with Virginia Tech? Now, the, it seems to me that's not just uh, for the reasons I suggested earlier, because we are all Americans, supposedly. It's also because we're a college community and so are they, and so we should feel some sort of special bond. Um, but then you raise these, you know, the killings at uh, various universities in Iraq, and so our, clearly our solidarity doesn't extend to Iraqi college communities, even though it, it, I would argue it really should. Yeah, on, on January 16th, this year, I believe, uh, a car bomb blew up near the entrance to Mustansiria University in Baghdad. And as rescuers approached, a suicide bomber blew himself up in the crowd. In all, at least 60 Iraqis, mostly female students, leaving the campus were killed, and more than 100 were wounded. And this was supposedly one of the world's first uh, universities. It was founded in 1232. Right. Um and I think you know that that's just sadly that's that's just one example. I ever since the uh, American invasion, 
I mean, there have been spectacular attacks like that one at, at various universities. There's, al- there's also been a lot of targeting of <clears throat> students and, and university professors, especially, um, right. but by various groups in, in, inside the country. And, you know, it's part of the, the broader picture in, in Iraq, sadly, it's just this, uh, the, the, in a way, there's there's no way to to stop the killing. That the American invasion has just destroyed all semblance of of security. And there are a lot of scores being settled. There are a lot of groups who have guns and want the world to be their way. And you know, if uh, clearly university professors or students, as articulate um, uh, you know, articulate people, able to express opinions, perhaps to organize politically, they're clearly a, th- a threat to 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 some of these armed groups. Is it because the media did, did report these? Uh, I think the media did report that there were sh- uh, deaths at these universities, mm-hmm. but it just didn't capture the American uh, mind. Th- th- that's right, and it, it's it's hard to know why. I mean, I think one reason is just sort of sheer exhaustion, that all you hear every day is 50 people die in Iraq, and you think, well, in a way it becomes banal. That's what happens in Iraq, you know, just like... right. Uh, you know what what happens in France is that people I don't know eat nice cheese and bread and drink wine. You know Iraq, Iraq becomes known for fifty people dying a day, and and it's very hard that to, to sort of maintain some sort of sympathy when you think, well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's just on a scale I can't comprehend. But at, at the same time, I it it tells us about a certain a, a real failure of the imagination on the part of uh, people in this country. Is that people can imagine what a college student at Virginia Tech is like? Uh, they can they can imagine as if they were standing in the same room. They can imagine, well, this is my son or daughter, or the you know the the people living next door. This is what I was like 20 years ago. It's very easy for them to imagine to picture what it looks like. And when it comes to Iraq, it, it's just so far away that people have no real conception of what life is like there of what an ordinary Iraqi person is like, of what it means to live in Baghdad, you know, surrounded by explosions. They just, they can't comprehend it, and, they, and maybe they didn't try. They think, well, this is so far away, it really doesn't matter to us. You know, all these people, if you hear 50 people die every day, you think, well, this is what Iraqis are like. They're violent, you know, they're, they're not rational like us, they're not civilized. You know, maybe this is why we should have, um, we were right to invade in the first place because we needed to bring law and order to these people, or maybe we shouldn't have bothered because these people are beyond redemption. They're just going to spend whatever we try to do, however we try to help them, they're going to continue killing each other. So, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm just speculating here, but it seems there's a real failure of imagination, uh, an unwillingness to to comprehend that there is there is life beyond America, that these are people like us with their same hopes and fears and disappointments and aspirations, and and the, the, you know, ultimately, they are human like us. And I guess I'm an unashamed humanist. It's not a very fashionable word these, word these days. And it's been much abused, of course. But for me, um, this is why I say in my letter to the Chancellor, ethics begins with the other. It's not with ourselves. It's, it's the other. We have to try to put ourselves in the place of, of the other, of the Iraqi, of the Algerian, of the, of the Vietnamese, before we worry about ourselves. So we have to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else. That's right. And, and to... To try to remember, you know, try to imagine what it would be like to living in the, to live in this environment, and not to cut ourselves off, not to because having a candlelight vigil only for people in Virginia is a way of cutting off the rest of the world. Well, on that note, uh, I want to thank uh, Philip Grant for being on this show, Subversity. 
and talking about, especially about Iran, uh, who where where most of us probably don't know anything about. Uh, Grant is a graduate student in anthropology and uh, wrote a ch- uh, open letter to the chancellor that was published uh, in this week's uh, New University. Uh, for more information on this issue, you can go to the website for subversity at KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, we're actually at the beginning of our pledge drive, and so you can call 824-5824 and uh, support programming like this on KUCI. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity.